0: You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Michael Gurian, who is the author of well over 20 different books on adolescents, young adults, males, females, all kinds of topics relating to growing up and becoming an adult. We're here today to talk about two of his books that I have read, Saving Our Sons, A New Path for Raising Healthy and Resilient Boys, as well as his latest novel, The Stone Boys, which deals with some really important topics related to boys growing up and dealing with trauma. In addition to being a New York Times best-selling author, Michael is also the founder of the Gurian Institute and he is a marriage and family counselor in private practice as well as a researcher who studies this stuff every day. If you have a teen who seems really moody or angry and you're having trouble connecting, this is the episode for you. We're going to talk about what might be going on, how to approach your teenager about the issue, what to say, and ultimately what you can do. Really excited to talk about all of that and more. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. So, I read a couple of your books Saving Our Sons and The Stone Boys. You write a lot about boys and men and masculinity. And uh, I'm curious why that is. Don't we have a girl problem? Shouldn't we be focusing on girls and uh, women? And uh, why do you write so much about men?
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, of course, we should focus on both and all. Um, And I have written a number of books (laughs) on girls. um, And I have two daughters. And so sometimes, sometimes people joke with me at, when i'm giving you know talks or speeches they'll make a joking introduction which is okay this is a talk on boys but michael gurian has no boys you know what does he know and <laughs> uh, and it's a worthy joke i mean i have i have two wonderful daughters they're 30 and 27 um so so I'm, I'm completely aware of the fact that girls everyone needs help girls need help there are specific areas that I've dealt with in my books and in our work that specifically target helping girls. In terms of boys, though, I mean, I mean, definitely the tenor of your question is, why? And, and I, I, would, I would respond, it's urgent. Like, we, it's not just, well, there's some boys struggling, but, but it's become urgent worldwide. Uh, our, um, in the first chapter of Saving Our Sons, I kind of lay out statistics. And people who read that, some will write me or say to me, I did not realize it was that bad you know, it is getting so bad for, for males. So we have to be able to do both. And in fact, if we don't look at males and females, both, we're not going to do much more to help girls. You know, we're, we're kind of getting to the edge of what we can do to help girls and women if we don't start helping boys and men. You know, we're, we're, we've got equality for girls and women. There are always areas we're going to work on. But in terms of basic statistics, there's really no statistical array um, in in the world, and this is including the global health survey from the WHO, there is no area where males are not doing worse than females. If we look at physiologic health, mental health, emotional health. So so yeah, there are guys at the very top, no doubt the president is male, right? I mean, a lot of those, those people are male, no doubt about it. A lot of the CEOs are male, but those are just, a few thousand males you know we're the rest of the world we got to see how much males are struggling and give them some help
0: and it sort of like masks a problem because then it makes it like we can't talk about all the males that are struggling because it's like well look males run the world um they're in all the positions of power but there's kind of this double-edged thing going on where also they're really struggling on a lot of these Uh, measures like yeah some of these statistics that you had in your book were really surprising to me like for every 100 girls who repeat kindergarten 194 boys repeat kindergarten for every 100 girls suspended from public elementary and secondary schools 215 boys are for every 100 girls expelled 297 boys are expelled death rates For every 100 girls aged 15 to 19 years old who die, 242 boys die. Like It goes on and on. Learning disabilities and all these different areas, the rates are higher among boys. Uh, So what's going on? Why is that?
1: Well, I think um, there are a number of reasons. I think one primary reason is that we are creating systems, nurturing systems, family systems, school systems uh, governmental institutions that are in child development. We're creating these systems without realizing that, that a number of elements in the systems are a mismatch with the male brain. So you could see in less scientific terms, you could say a mismatch with boys. I'm a gender neuroscience person. So I look at it as a mismatch with the male brain and the male and the female brain are significantly different animals at a molecular level, at a neurochemical level, in terms of the structure of the brain, et cetera. We, we, our brains operate differently. There's a lot of overlap, of course, but they operate differently. So we have systems like school systems. You you mentioned a number of things from school systems. We are creating school systems and the, the these wonderful teachers and administrators are not being trained in in uh, college and grad school. They're not being trained in male, female brain. So they, they don't realize, for instance, that males automatically on average use less words than females. They write less words. The male brain doesn't connect words to feelings and words to senses as quickly as the female brain. You know, um, male behavior it, it is at its baseline is different than female behavior. Males are more testosterone driven. So they're they're more physically aggressive. And that's how they build resilience. It's actually an asset. It's not a liability. Um, uh, it's an asset for nurturing um, violence obviously is a bad thing, but I want to remind people that aggression, that's a scientific term for something that is not violent. And aggression nurturance is nurturing others through aggression by jumping on other people with your body, by throwing things with them, you know, uh, what I call aggression nurturance. So, but we've created systems in which our wonderful teachers are not trained in any of this. So, when they get in the classroom or set up the school, they set it up much more for female brain. Much more, much better for girls, much better for the way girls behave, the way girls sit still, etc. And so, of course, more girls succeed and more boys fail. And when you start adding the numbers of that and you go throughout the the industrialized world and post-industrial world, you see that boys are behind girls in school. Uh, in all, all of the countries that the WHO, for instance, would study, and why? Well, it's just my gosh. You look at the systems, and the systems are not set up for these guys. So some guys can adapt fine, but you've got you know every our pilot research at University of Missouri, Kansas City. We found in classrooms of 25 that you would have one to two girls who were having difficulties, but you had five to seven boys. So you know that's three times the amount, and then you start adding that up into the millions. And you know, you look at prison, you look at suicide, male male imprisonment, male suicide, and, and all those things in saving our sons. And that's part of why we're there, because our systems don't understand what boys need. And and it's not just schools. I mean, our family systems. The father has been pushed out, or he's pulled out, or however you want to look at that politically. These boys need dads, and they need male role models. Their bodies and brains need them. If they don't get those male role models, they will not succeed as well. And we've you know creative family systems that in which the dad is kind of displaced. Uh, So we're creating systems that don't understand what males need. And every generation that we do that, we'll lose millions and millions of more males.
0: You talk about the differences between the male and female brain and one thing in your book that I found really interesting was you write that there are connections between the part of the brain that deals with emotional pain and problem solving in the male brain and that uh more those areas are more connected to verbal areas in the female brain which maybe sort of explains why um, women like to talk about their feelings more and men like to try and do something about it or um, start going into planning mode to figure out how they can, what they can do next or something. And uh, reading this was like eye-opening to me. It got me thinking about how um, there can be disconnect a lot of times between like fathers and daughters or like mothers and sons um, when they're sort of like their brains are coming at emotions from a different way.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, for, and for like parents of teens, this is such a, a great thing to, to, to get into, Just you know, because when you're, when your child's, when your child is three, four, five, six, you know, in those early years, all of us are, you know, we're all crying, we're all, we're all sort of emotional and we're all, you know, however anyone wants to define that. I mean, the, the difference you're talking about here that doesn't show us up as much for a five, six year old, but when you're a parent of a teen, you know, and then you start, especially the teens are 15, 16, 17, you can really start seeing it. Then of course, if you're in a, a male female coupleship, you can see it for adults. That what happens in the brain is that the, the sensory, what's called the sensory register, which is all the stuff that comes in by, via senses, which is everything, including these emotions, um, you know, that comes into the brain. And in the female brain, the way that brain is set up, between seven and nine uh, centers in her brain will light up. These are emotive centers. For males, when they have the sensory emotional experience, only two centers of the brain light up with these emotions. So already much more of the female brain is devoted to converting what happened in the world right that comes in via the senses to emotive responses and then in the female brain those nine areas are connected to those as you said the word centers that are in the frontal and temporal lobes so so now yeah. the words are connected to the feelings and to the senses and she is almost auto- automatically or very quickly able to start processing things in words sh- should she choose to yeah for males only a couple centers lit up And yes, there's some connectivity to verbal centers, but remember he's only doing verbals on the left, right? Females are doing verbals on both sides of the brain. That's how that brain's set up. Males are doing verbals on the left. So you have to get connectivity to the left to get words from males. And then also in the male brain, it's much more automatic for the signaling to go to that that center of the brain you just described. We call it a problem solving center of the brain, the temporal parietal junction, which is, people maybe can't see me, but I'm pointing to sort of the top of my brain. And that junction is a problem solving. So, So males will tend to move the signaling much more quickly to that problem solving. So you have right there, two or three reasons that the male and the female brain experience their emotions somewhat differently. Now that doesn't mean there is isn't overlap. There always is females problem solve males can become very emotional. So absolutely. But we're studying baselines, right? When we're doing science, we're looking at, we're looking at a million or 2 million or 5 million or 10 million people. And that's a different baseline. So, so we have to always be teaching our young males. Okay. You got to not don't problem solve yet. You got to listen to her listen now, listen, listen for five minutes, don't problem solve yet, you know? But then on the other hand, it's actually not a bad thing that he problem solves as long as the timing is right you know, and so moms of teen males are always having to try to train these teen males. Okay, you just got to talk to me like for two minutes, I just need two minutes on what your emotions are, you know, and then we can go to problem solving. But but the way my brain is set up as mom, I gotta gotta get some emotions from you, you know, so we're trying to train the teen guys. But then we're training the moms to have, you know, the expectation. Yes, there are some teen males who are going to be very talkative about their feelings. Sure. But our expectations of a teen male should be that, you know, maybe a minute or two, if we can get that, we're happy. And, and mom's worry. The problem is that mom's worry. They feel like not, not realizing the brains are set up so differently. They feel like if my son does not talk to me about these things a number of times per day, that he's unhealthy and that we have to shift because he could very well be healthy. He's just not talking to her about these things. Right. And so yeah. so then we start to say, well, let's look at signs of health for him at, or or ill health. If he's depressed and isolating, that's something else. But it could be he's not processing his feelings anymore with his mom at 17 the way he did. But he's still fine. Right. He's healthy. And so that's OK.
0: Because I feel like that's, you know, that's difficult if you're a mom and you're um, really feel this urge to want to talk about what your kid is going through and um, hear what they're feeling and they're sort of shutting down or just saying no I'm fine whatever it feels like there's a disconnect there like you're not being able to see into their world a little bit so I wonder what um, do you just think moms need to sort of like bring down their expectations for how much your teenage son is going to be talking about what they're feeling and going through, or um, how should moms approach that?
1: Well, a number of strategies. Well, yes, I mean, you know, every mom will know her son. And as she hears this, and then processes it, she may need to, as you say, sort of have more reasonable expectations. So expectations that aren't best that aren't based on her projecting her emotive structure onto the boy, but expectations that of that boy's emotive structure you know like what is it he needs what is it he's able to do to satisfy her emotional needs and and how how is he actually satisfying his emotional needs elsewhere that should be part of her expectation does he have some best friends well he probably talks to them you know is dad in the picture does he talk to dad is uh, does he have a, have a girlfriend? Like if he's in later teens, you know, maybe he's doing a lot of his emotive work with the girlfriend. So, so, you know, mom kind of looks at the, at, at his emotive structure as it is built and then looks at his other relationships and then goes, oh, okay. Okay. Here are my reasonable expectations now. Um, if he's isolating or depressed, this is a different category. We need to immediately get help for him. But if he's kind of in her mind, you know, normally motive structure for him, then she can approach it this other way and see that maybe he's getting the help he needs. And then she can use certain strategies with him too, like, don't, don't have him sit down, come sit at the table, look me in the eye and tell me what you're feeling. Okay. So that's not a good one. We don't want to be using that one, right? You know, um, maybe it'll work once in a while and she knows her son best, but still it might be better and kind of generally is better to walk and talk. So be shoulder to shoulder with him, not forcing eye contact. Because remember with a male, when we force eye contact, it triggers a number of things in the brain, testosterone, vasopressin, it, it does some triggering that we don't want. It, it puts mm. his brain under more stress. What we actually want is okay. for his brain to open up. So, so sit down and look at me in the eye could be completely wrong. It's better to go shoulder and shoulder, better to go do something with him. That's another wonderful strategy. You get more out of guys, Uh, if you're doing something with them, and then while you're doing the thing with them, things come up, you know, Um, and since you're doing something with them more of their brain is activated, because they're doing rather than just sitting there staring. And um, and then there's rapport that's being built and then some things can come out of that. so so once we study uh, and you're, you're right, saving our sons has a lot of this in there for moms um, and for everyone once we study guys and really understand how they're set up emotionally, um, you know then a lot of these strategies kind of emerge uh, almost instinctively from from moms but we kind of have to train ourselves.
0: So I noticed in your novel, The Stone Boys, there were some of these themes going on. Um, for instance, the characters, the two main characters in this book, both have some sort of emotional trauma from their past, and they really struggle to open up about it with the adults in their lives. And it's kind of this one of the main struggles of the book. And then also, once they share these things with each other, um, <laughs> they sort of immediately go into planning mode of trying to figure out, you know, how can we get revenge or, um, you know, right that make this right. And that actually kind of ends up going a little astray, uh, creating problems of its own. But, um, so it seems to me like there's a lot of, you know, research and, um, psychological truth that goes into this book, even though it's a fictional story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, this, the stone boys is my, is my fourth published work of fiction. Third novel And I also published a uh, book of short stories and I do publish. I, I really love writing novels. Uh, I published a number of books of poems. So I, you know, I definitely write and it comes out in different ways. Right. Um, at the same time, most of my books are nonfiction and so and it is all one brain doing it. So the Michael Gurian brain, you know, is is sort of coalesces in each work. And in the Stone Boys, it's two teen boys, as you said, one is 16, one is 17. And it's a thriller plot. It's a suspense plot. So it's a, you know, it's a page turner. Yeah. But at the same time, my understanding of male emotive structure, let's say, does come through. And I've been writing this novel for uh, decades as I say in the afterward I mm. actually I, I, one of the characters Ben is my foil most of what happened to Ben happened to me it was sexual abuse trauma for six months when I was 10 and I was molested by the psychiatrist so but by the time I disclosed it to I first disclosed it to my parents but it, eight, it took me eight years I was 18 and yeah. you know it's very hard obviously for it's getting easier now for males to disclose what happened to them but I'm 62, I was born in 1958. So it was actually 1976 mm-hmm. when I disclosed to my parents. So I've set that novel in 1975 when Ben is 17 and then Dave is 16. And, and I, you know, it's pro- there's probably no way that my understanding of male emotional structure can't come through the book. It had to come through, right? And I hope ultimately, right. even though this is a thriller plot and all, ultimately I hope that when people read it, they'll, they'll also understand boys better and yeah. even though my intention was just to tell a story, but that they'll also understand boys better and the way boys do emotions, because especially these traumatized boys, males do trauma somewhat differently than females. Uh, yes, we're all human; we all experience trauma. But males, we we do, as you've hinted at, we go more toward planning, we go more toward problem solving, um, if we even unrepress it. You know, what we'll tend to do is just completely repress it. Right. We'll completely compartmentalize
0: it. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just
1: compartmentalize it. <laughs> We're not going to deal with it. It didn't happen. And then, of course, it leaks yeah. out. And it leaks out and our, mm. our becoming perhaps violent or are becoming unable to attach, unable to have a family. I mean, it'll leak out. And so these are two boys yeah. who are trying actually to work with their trauma. But it's 1975. Yeah. They don't have the language for that. They're just they just disclose it to each other finally after they become best friends. And then as you said, once they disclose it to each other, they start doing some things that create even more of the thriller plot. Um, and then there's, yeah. the, as you've hinted at, there's this, the whole subplot, which is massive of them trying to talk to adults about it. You know, Ben with his both his mother and father, Dave with his mother and father, and the parents having different thresholds for their ability to understand or read their kids signals, you know, and every parent does have a different threshold for that. So I hope it's authentically written and I, and it, I think it is a page turner. So I hope people will read it. And especially if you have teen boys, I think you'll, you'll get a lot out of it, even though there are a couple scenes in it, obviously that are violent, but I think parents would get a lot out of it.
0: So what about teenagers? Do you think this is something that we should get for teen boys to read?
1: yeah i think teen boys or girls any teens can read it but i think they have to be 14 and older um so i suggested as a high school read i actually do know of two middle schools where they had their eighth graders read it Uh, um uh and so far no problems but but i i kind of see it as you know 14 and up because there are a couple of those scenes in it that are sexually violent. And of course, it, it, it is about sexual abuse. So it's not like you can't, you, you have to do something there. Um, yeah. it's, I don't think it's overdone, but there are these two scenes, one of bullying, which is completely realistic. Um, I'm a therapist and I've had clients who went through pretty much that exact same thing. Um, mm-hmm. So it is realistic, but it, it is bullying, it is violence. And then when they recreate back to the sexual abuse that they experienced, um, you know, that's, there's a couple scenes of that that are powerful. So uh, that's why I think it, for, I think you're, people are safe if it's 14 up, because you can really talk to a 14 year old about this stuff. If it's a 10 or 11 year old, I think the sexual stuff too confusing. Yeah. Uh...
0: So um, uh, as a parent, how would you know if your child might have been the victim of sexual abuse?
1: Well, with any trauma, uh, there's first the trauma markers, you know, maybe the child is isolating, the child has become depressed, um, and this could be for all, all sexes, both sexes, all genders, you know, isolation and depression could be could be genetic or congenital or something, could be adolescent onset, but also could be connected to trauma, Mm -hmm. and not even just sexual abuse trauma, but could be significant bullying trauma, you know, so, so first we, that's one of the first things parents ought to look at, isolation from others, hiding in a room, has no friends, only relating through video games, uh, etc., and the computer, and then we can pretty much assume that, therefore, if the if it's a boy who's, you know, mid-teens or later, he's probably porn, doing a lot of porn. You know, everything is through the computer. So that's still a form of isolation. We, you know, I would watch for that. In terms of sexual abuse trauma, and then to finish that thought, all the signs of trauma, and anyone can Google anywhere, or you can find them in my books, you know, they're more than depression, you can see other things. But then getting to sexual abuse trauma, Uh, A child who has been sexually abused might sexualize early. You might notice that this child is uh, walking around naked at 10 or 11 and calling attention, you know, Mm. wanting people to look, you you know what I mean? Anything like that, that seems like, there's nothing wrong with nudity. I mean, nudity is just, it's just your body, but Uh, we're talking about like where it gets a bit sexualized. Also early use of porn, um, overuse of porn, could be related maybe not because porn is now available and we have a lot of porn addiction but could be right. related to um sexual abuse trauma so watching that and every parent until their child leaves you know leaves the home or becomes independent uh, every parent should uh know the kid's passwords this you know and and uh i mean we have this myth that oh the child's you know 13 we gave him a smartphone they have privacy you have privacy when you go to the bathroom. Okay. Right. I mean, there are certain things you have privacy <laughs> for, but your computer and your smartphone um, they're still part of this family, you know, and yeah. parents, parents need to not give that up because they need to find a way in to figure out where this child is going, what sites, et cetera, especially if they, if they're seeing depression or isolation or early sexualization or any of these things um, uh, you know, because this teen now, who was probably traumatized earlier through sexual abuse, is now probably searching out ways to to reflect, uh, to mirror, you know, um, and even in a way to process his sexual abuse trauma, but he's going to be doing it in areas that can be dangerous. Um, so that's another piece of advice that I, I constantly give parents. Always know what sites your child is visiting.
0: Hmm. So then, um, what would you do if you notice some of these signs, or think maybe my kid went through something traumatic?
1: Um, who, I, I, if you know, I would bring it up to the child, and it's especially helpful to have whoever right now in the child's life has the most rapport. Like I'll just pick, let's say, a fifteen-year-old. Yeah. You know, sometimes that fifteen-year-old has more rapport with mom right now than with dad, or more rapport with dad than mom, or two moms or two dads, more rapport with someone, right? I mean, however that constellation is set up, um, it, that person may need to bring it up. And then it can certainly help. It can help if someone in the system, and this may not be the parent, this may be a grandparent, this may be, it certainly could be a counselor, could be a coach. If someone in the system, this sort of multi-family system that wraps around this child has experienced sexual abuse, okay, then that person bringing it up can help because boys sometimes boys need to hear the story you know they need they're not accessing as much verbally as as we think quite often Uh, and they need they need someone to tell them their story right and then they can identify with that story and go oh okay okay well you know and and as the people are bringing it up whoever has rapport whoever can do it obviously going to get counseling fast you know if we identify we want to get help from professionals fast So there are certain ways in which males experience sexual abuse that this person who's experienced it will know how to talk that language or the professional, you know, and even the parents, I hope parents when they read the book, um, you know, obviously I hope they won't just read it because they have a son who may have been sexually abused. I think it's just a good novel, but about boys. But if they suspect something, I hope it can help them have language. And if that boy is 14 or older, um, I would give that book, to the boy and then set up a time to talk with understanding by saying, you know, I experienced this or, you know, I didn't experience it, but I get how confusing it is, you know, so that that rapport is built where the male is, where that boy is.
0: We're here with Michael Gurian talking about what can cause anger, depression, anxiety, and stress in boys, and what parents can do about it. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
1: So environmental neurotoxins are something I'm begging every parent to look at. When males get depressed, we tend to withdraw or fight, fight or flight. We tend yeah, to increase right. our withdrawal, which is more depression and hiding and isolating, and we can also tend to become violent when we're depressed. So lower testosterone, which is a result of these neurotoxins, especially the estrogen mimickers, that's actually creating more violence. And we just, the way our popular culture processes it is, we don't understand that, but that is how the science works. 10 to 20% maybe of our teens, we don't know exactly, Using too much porn, and it's becoming toxic to them. And so ways in which it becomes neurotoxic is it affects the way dopamine works in the brain. And so they're going to, they're going to have difficulty later in life, being married or being coupled um, and sustaining that coupleship, you know, committing and sustaining to it. And so we still use marriage for that. So I'll say marriage, but you could mean whatever one wants there. Their ideas of what a female is, and I'm going to assume heterosexual now, their ideas of what a female is of that body, of what that body should do, of how that body should satisfy them. I mean, all of that stuff gets mixed up. And that's the thing that we have to fight about, against as a country. We can't forgive bad behavior, but we have to fight this concept that males are basically either defective or they're bad people
0: want to hear the full interview sign up for a subscription today you get unlimited access to all the interviews i've conducted it's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at talking to teens thanks for listening i'll see you next time